So what we're doing here is I'm taking the early service sermon and I'm taking this message and we're mixing them together and seeing what can come of it. So one of two options, either this is going to fail miserably or it's going to be like a huge blessing to you. Either way, I'm hoping that God is the one constructing and writing all of this and hopefully your hearts are prepared to receive what he's intended. So I I entitle this, strangely enough, A tale of two genders, okay? A tale of two genders. As we go through these scriptures, and there's going to be a lot of scriptures, but just keep that in mind, a tale of two genders. The first thing I want to pick up, and we're going to look at, again, the the Easter story from all four of the synoptic gospels. Synoptic means it basically tells a synopsis of an event. And all four of the gospels come from four different perspectives, and they're all basically four individuals who are looking from their angle and explaining the story of Jesus' death and resurrection on that particular week. So we have to understand that they're not all going to see the same thing. They're going to see things differently. They're not all going to focus on the same events or the same people. They're going to focus on what was important to them. You know, Matthew was a... a He was the tax collector. He has a different perspective. Luke was the physician. He had a different perspective. John was the beloved disciple who loved Jesus with all of his heart, and he's going to have a whole different perspective. And Mark, well, Mark's just Mark. But anyway, so we're going to look at all four of their perspectives as much as we can at this particular topic, a tale of two genders, in light of the Easter story. And the first thing I want to pick up, uh, the subheading is this, if you're taking notes, write down these words, who's picking up the tab, okay? Who's picking up the tab? In Luke chapter 8, 1 through 3, it says this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 disciples were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary Magdalene was one of which she had seven demons come out of her. The disciples all thought she just had a mental health problem, but no, Jesus knew they were demons. He got rid of them. But listen to this. These women were helping to support them, Jesus and the disciples. They were working and helping to support them out of their own means. Now, this is a misogynistic community. This is a a whole crazy world that they're living in. This is all about male dominance, right? Women were nothing, no rights, no votes, nothing. But these women, out of their emptiness, out of their brokenness, out of their nothingness, were supporting the work of the disciples and Jesus from their own means. Interesting. In Matthew 27, 55 and 56, it says that many women were there watching from a distance, and they had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary uh, the mother of Zebedee's sons, James and John. In Mark 15, 40 through 41, it says some women were watching at a distance from, uh, as the cross was, was being played out and Jesus' life was coming to a close. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Understand that they started in Galilee. That's where Jesus' ministry was at the high point of his life and the most effectiveness of the people's lives. And those women followed him from Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem and were present at his crucifixion. 
They were present. They never left him. They kept providing for his needs. They kept caring for him. They kept supporting him. They did everything within their physical power to do for Jesus. I think it's safe to say these were amazing women. They weren't afraid of anything. They were strong. They were in love with Jesus, not because of anything that they could get out of him. They've already received everything they could ever ask for. But because of what Jesus had done for them, they simply wanted to return the favor. This is such an odd topic. This is such an odd concept for some people to understand. I think I told you about the friend I had several years ago who said to me, why in the world would you or any other person want to serve a God who is so demanding who wants 10% of all of your money, who wants you to serve him, who wants you to go into church every Sunday and worship him. Why, why would anybody want to serve a God with those kinds of mandates? And I said, well, you simply don't understand. You see, I don't do those things because God makes me do them. I do them because I love him so much for what he has already done for me. How could I not do those things? He found me when I was this piece of wretch in in the trash heaps, and he pulled me out of that when nobody else in this world gave a, a, a hair for me, never gave anything for me. And he pulled me out of this, and he cleaned me up, and he said, Darren, I think I can use you if you're willing. And I'm like, what options do I have? You know, if you can do anything with me, and these are literal words, if you can do anything with me, if you can help me with my alcohol problem, if you can help me with my self-esteem, if you can help me with my poverty, I will do anything you ask of me. And so just like that, he started blessing my life, making it become possible. Yeah, I, I worship my God, and I'm here as often as I possibly can be because of the gratitude I have for him. I came into the ministry not just because he called me to do this. I could have easily have refused, and I did for several years. But I'm here doing this because I want, to, I want to honor him. I want to please him, and I want people to know the same love of God that I know, if not deeper and better, bigger and wider. I know that's a tough topic. These women cared for him. They gave of themselves for him, and they gave out of their own means, which I'm telling you, they didn't have much. As a contrast to the women and to their devotion, yes, we know that the the disciples, they all committed about three years of their time and being taught and and, and following him and being with him present at all times. Uh, Peter, James, and John were the close three disciples. They were in the inner circle. They spent all the time with him. Some of the others, you know, Thomas, Judas, they were a little bit peripheral uh, in their commitment, but that's all right. They still were there most of the time. But in Luke 9, chapter 35, Jesus instructed disciples that when you go out, when I'm sending you out, when you go, listen to this, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. And if people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. Jesus actually told the disciples, you go out and don't worry about the finances. What Jesus have in mind, the women will help. The women will provide. Somebody else is going to provide for us, protect us with, with their gifts and their prayers. 
I mean, if I was a disciple, then I'd say, well, I feel a little bit guilty now. But that's what they were called to do. The women knew that they didn't have a legal right or, or a, a cultural right to go out and do the work of the disciples, even though they were disciples in their own right. So since we can't go and do it ourselves, won't you take our gifts and we'll support you in this? And, and, and if, we're not, if our support is not enough, then, then let the people who host you provide for you. But either way, you don't have to worry about nothing. I guess I should say you don't have to worry about anything to be, you know, a little bit more. Anyway. A second tab, or second topic, we'll get to in a moment, or that we're going to get to now, and these are all going to work together, I hope, is who's preparing the body? It says in Matthew 27 that Joseph Arimathea took the body, <coughs> excuse me, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and he placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and he went away. Focus on that. He went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The purpose was, as we find later, they were just there to find out where his body was going to be laid so that they could come back later. A couple dynamics we need to understand is, of course, when, when Jesus was sentenced uh, to die on the cross, it was at about 9 a.m., maybe 8 a.m. that particular Friday morning. Uh, this was unexpected. They didn't count on this. But by the time he got to the, the, the side of the Golgotha, it was about noon, and at best, he hung on the cross between two and three hours before he died. This was a very quick process. The women did not have time to run to the store to buy the expensive spices and the nard and whatever else that they would put into the oil, the, the burial fluids. They didn't have time for all of this. And so keep that in mind. But Mary Magdalene and the other, other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb observing. Sorry, page turn. In John 19... 38 through 42, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for he feared the Jews. Pay attention to that. Secretly, he was a disciple because he feared the Jews. By the way, don't forget that. We're going to come back to that. Secretly, he was a disciple because of the fear of the Jews. Did you catch that? He did it in secret, by the way, because he was, he was scared afraid. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus, John chapter 3. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, whoever, you know, you know the passage, right? John three seventeen. he did not come to the world to condemn the world, but so the world through him might be saved. You know, you know this. This was Nicodemus, the Pharisee who came at night and said, hey, dude, I understand there's something about you different, and I want what you got, but I don't know how to get it, and I don't know if I can have it. But, Lord, whatever you can give me, I'm interested. And Jesus told him about, well, you have to be born again, right? <laughs> Excuse me. That was an exclamation point. Uh, no, it would just, just distract me. <laughs> anyway. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, 75 pounds. I did some research on this. It actually takes only about 40 pounds of, of, of this, these spices, this nard, whatever it is, this aloe and, and myrrhs, whatever, uh, only about 40 pounds to adequately cover a body for burial. 
goodness. Anyway, but they use 75 pounds. So the reason is, is because if it's somebody who's extremely special, you're not afraid to go the extra mile. It's like buying caskets. You know, if you just want a pine box, we know how you felt, right? You're like, well, I love them, I miss them, but here's a pine box, you know? Uh, no, we know better than that because the prices are astronomical. But, I mean, I used to work in a funeral home. It was nothing to sell a $15,000 casket because surely you want the best for your spouse, right? Yeah, I never use that line, but anyway. 75 pounds. In other words, this was a little bit of overkill, but it was to show the devotion, the honor, the respect that they had for the deceased. But listen to this now. The two of them, Nicodemus and Joseph, wrapped the body, put him in the tomb, sealed it with the stone. But the women hadn't had time to do their preparation. Now, this is, this is not out of any commentary. This is just a fleeting thought that I'm grabbing out of the air and spitting it out my mouth. So do not hold me accountable. My hunch is, is what the Bible really meant to say was, the men didn't do it good enough. <laughs> the men didn't do it right. So the women had to go and to buy their own, mix up their own ingredients and bring it and do the body correctly. It just kind of seems to align with that. But we know in John 19, 38-42, that this was in accordance with Jewish custom, that the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden with a new tomb. So this was customary, Jewish custom. You have to anoint the body before you bury it, right? In Mark chapter 15, 45-47, so Joseph bought some linen cloth. He wrapped it, the body, in the linen, and he placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. All right, so now they're going to do it the right way. When the Sabbath day was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. They were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? A major question, right? A major problem. I will tell you this, that if you look at the Gospels, all four of them, and read the story, you're going to find that when Joseph of Arimathea put the body in, and, and, and the perspective of that Gospel writer, he was the only one who wrapped the body and the only one who put it in the tomb, which implies he was the only one there to roll the stone in front of the tomb. If that's true, then it only takes one man to, to get the job done. But we find that from the other gospel that Nicodemus was probably there. And so maybe it took the two men to do it. And that's okay. It just so happens there was two guards on duty that day. And if the women got there, they probably could have asked the guards to help. And they would probably said no. But if you wink at them, you know, you know, whatever else. We don't know. But they weren't really stressed about it is what I'm trying to say. They were concerned but not stressed. As they, as they, uh, when they looked up, they saw that the stone was very large and it had already been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Go tell his disciples and Peter he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as you were told. Mark 16, 1 through 7. The third point, what are you so afraid of? What are you so afraid of? 
In Matthew 28, 1, it says this. And again, we're going to tie this all together at the end here. It's going to blow your minds. Maybe. After the Sabbath, at dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on top of it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid that they shook and became like dead men. That would be quite a sight to behold. The angel spoke, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he laid. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. Pay attention to that. Afraid but filled with joy. And they ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Next page. Matthew 16, 9 through 10. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him who were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. There was a side note here. Let me see if I can remember it. I forgot it. If it's important, it'll come back to me. Mary got there. There's words that describe that she was amazed, that she was astounded, that she was perplexed, that she was gripped with fear. But at no point did it ever immobilize her. At no point. She was the very first person to receive the gospel message from the angels that he is risen. Why a woman? I just want to suggest maybe it was because she was the only one there. And if that's true, then why was she the only one there? Because we see constant reminders that the men were afraid. Yes, in John chapter 20, it says that, and, or that Peter and John, that they ran to the tomb after she had been there first, and she came and told them, and then they ran to the garden tomb. And then John, was he loved Jesus so much, he just couldn't get himself to look into the tomb. It did say that he outran Peter, because we know that he wore, wore a better pair of Nikes, right? No, because the love compelled him to run as fast as he can to get there immediately because I want to see what happened to my best friend. And Peter was tagging along, chugging and chugging, you know, big old fat fisherman, you know, catching up. But he gets there and he had a boldness. You know, he didn't have that the same effect. He just immediately walked right into the tomb and noticed the linens and the, and the burial cloth laying there folded. But the scriptures say that once they both looked, they didn't understand, so they both ran back home. Interesting, but Mary stayed, and the scriptures say that she stood there crying. She just stood there weeping. Luke 24, 1 through 12 says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but they stayed. 
Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while you were in Galilee? Then they remembered his words. Pay attention to that. Don't you remember, ladies, when he told you this would happen in Galilee? And they remembered when he reminded them, right? They told all of these things to the 11 and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene and the other women. Here's a note for you. John chapter 20, verse 9. He, John, saw the empty tomb and believed. In parentheses, though, listen to this. They still did not understand from scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. The women are getting the same message that the men are getting. The men are getting it more in detail because they're spending every moment of every day with Jesus. And when it comes to, to push and shove at the very end, at the very tomb, the men still don't get it. And the women remember and believe. Crazy stuff, if you ask me. Now let's get personal for a moment. We also find another little subnote. Women were not afraid to cry in public. It says in John 20, 10 through 13, the disciples went back to their homes because, you know, they were afraid. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look for the first time. She wanted the men to go first. She just wanted to take in the scenery. She saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they put him. This is a weird question. You have a woman crying at the cemetery. Why are you crying? No-brainer, right? But it was such a no-brainer that it was a question that never should have been asked unless they knew what the answer was. Notice that she did not say, I'm grieving over the loss of my beloved friend. She didn't say that. Never did she say, I'm worried about myself because he was my whole life. And now that he's gone, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. I don't know where I'm going to live. I don't know what to do. I'm just scared. She didn't say that. She didn't say, I'm a little bit stressed because there's an awful lot of responsibility being put on me to be the first carrier of the gospel and I'm just a little overwhelmed by it. No, she said, they've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they put him. In other words, what she's saying is this, I don't know where Jesus is. I don't know where Jesus is. What did you do with my Jesus? And that's why I'm provoked to ask the question, why don't we cry like that? Why aren't we that concerned about where Jesus is in the midst of our suffering and our circumstances? I don't know what to do with my life. Well, where's Jesus? I don't know what to do in my marriage. I don't know how to save it. Well, where's Jesus? I'm sick and I think I'm going to die. Okay, where's Jesus? Why is he always the last place we look? And why do we always just assume that somebody else will find him? It's our responsibility to go out and to dig and dig and dig, to turn up stones, to look around every corner, to, to, to scurry the bushes, whatever it takes. Where is Jesus? And until you find him, there should be a lot of tears. The fourth point is this. Jesus appeared first to the women. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, 
the, the angels of the Lord went first to the shepherds, the Bedouins. They were like the bottom tier of the economic food chain. They were just stinky shepherds. They didn't have good bathing rituals. They didn't really care what people thought about the hair growing between their teeth. They didn't care about that stuff. They were Bedouins. All they cared about are my goats happy or my camels happy and is my wife cooking good coffee. You know, that's it. But the shepherds went to the Bedouins first, the lowest class of people at that time. And yes, some of the Bedouins would have been women. And now when Jesus is raised from the dead, the angels of the Lord go to the women. Also right around there at the bottom rung, they put the the message into them. Why is that? After reading everything I've read, I'd have to say this because they had more trust in the women at this point than they did with the men because the men were scared out of their minds. There's evidence of that if you just read chapter 20 of John. In Mark 16, 9 through 10, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. First to Mary. In Mark 16, 14, it says, Later Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and for their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he was risen. In other words, he rebuked them for ignoring the testimony of the women. Isn't that something that you haven't seen Jesus in three days? He's been to hell. He's come back. He's like a whole new being right now. He's amazing, you know. He's he's like ghost-like but human-like and God-like and human. It's just crazy. Here he is standing among you, and you're like, Jesus, where you been, dude? Been missing you. Cardinals been winning. But Jesus says, how dare you guys? I rebuke you. How dare you to ignore, to have such lack of faith, and to have stubborn refusal to believe those who I sent to you to tell you the tomb was empty. No high fives that day. So this fear thing is huge. This fear thing is huge. This grips men and women alike. It is so pervasive in this world. Too many people are letting fear dictate what they do and don't do, who they talk to and who they don't talk to, what jobs they take, what jobs they don't take. Fear is everywhere. And I just want to continually remind you, because I I spit this out at least three times a day. Fear doesn't come from God. Fear doesn't come from God. It never has, never will. Fear isn't equated to God. If you're ever afraid of anything, it's not from God. If you're afraid, you should be encouraged that God must be up to something because the devil is the source of the fear and he's implanting it into your head and your heart for a reason because there's a path he doesn't want you to go down. And so he uses fear. That's his dominant tactic. I'm going to use fear to scare you enough to where you just stay home and don't do what you're supposed to do. And he's very good at what he does. In 1 John 4.18, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Love is God. God is love. That's what he does for a living. That's his identity. That's his everything. 
Lying, deceiving, hating, fear-mongering, that is the devil. That's what he does. That's who he is. Be very aware of who you listen to on a daily basis when you're praying, when you're talking to somebody, when you're thinking about what to do with your life. Keep that in mind. The devil wants to stifle you because he hates you. God wants to bless you because he loves you. If there is fear, run from it. Last page. I know you're thankful. The other thing I want to suggest to you is this. God knows everything about you that there is to know. He knows what you need. He knows what you want. He knows your future. He knows the plans that he has for you to prosper you, to bless you, to guide you and love you. He knows all of that in the future. He knows what's best for you. So if there's anything in your life that is lacking or missing, in this case, confidence and boldness. Remember, 1 Timothy or is it 2 Timothy chapter 1? Uh, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power. If you have no power at all in your life, then ask. Ask for it. In Romans 8, 26, 27, it says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. In other words, he knows your life. He knows everything about you. So if you are concerned about something, if you need anything, just ask him. Just ask him. In Matthew 7, 7 through 11, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. If you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give, give good gifts to those who ask him? And we are his children. So do you really think if you go to the Heavenly Father and say, Lord, I pray for you to heal my spouse. Do you really think he's going to give you a scorpion? Do you really think he's going to laugh in your face and slap you? So what are you afraid of? Just ask him. He loves you more than you'll ever know. Just ask him. He's waiting for you to ask him. He's not going to give you anything that you don't ask for up front unless it's something that is is pertinent to his future investment in you. But he wants you to ask. Salvation is one of those things. He's never going to force it on you. He's never going to come up to you and say, hey, brother, sister, now's the time. You ready to give your life to me? He is going to wait for you to ask him, and then he'll step in and change your life forever. So why don't we ask? Fear, I'm telling you, is in every single person in this building. There is some level of it in everybody. The question is this, and not everybody will say this. Many people are being hindered because of their lack of faith and because of the fear that dominates them. And they're not enjoying life. They're they're being hindered. They hate their lives. They're angry. They're bitter all the time. And they'll even say to you, if you were to ask them, I don't like my life right now. I don't like my job. I don't like what I'm doing. I want to do something fun. I want to do something more life-changing. I want to do something more significant or relevant in this world. But fear is keeping them away from it. So I'm just going to throw it out there. Why don't you just ask the Lord to take it away from you? 
Why don't you just ask him, Lord, show me what your perfect love really looks like and feels like, tastes like, smells like, because right now fear is killing me. And I'm telling you, the good father who gives good gifts will step into your life and he will rock your world. He will throw you down. He will stomp on you. He will say, now go in peace and you're going to love it. And you're going to say, why didn't I do this earlier? Quit being afraid. That's why we have an empty tomb. Because he's already taught us the full extent of his power, his grace, and his love. Why don't we just enjoy it and say, thank you, Lord. And I want you to start calling the shots for now on. As we close, I just want to offer the one suggestion. Maybe, maybe fear has dominated your life and it's time to get rid of it today. I'd be more than happy to pray with you down here. We've got other people to pray for you. Let's get rid of the fear. Then you might be able to live for a change. If you are just distant from God and you know you haven't been living for him, but you want to get things right with God today for whatever reason, it doesn't matter, but come to the Lord today and let me pray with you to receive him. We'll, we'll put an end to the questions and the doubts and the fears that you have about your, your salvation. Whatever it is, I'm here to pray for you and I'll be here all day if I need to be, but we got to cover you guys in prayer. Whatever it is, come. Let's pray. Father, I just pray for all these people here that you will just descend upon us like a powerful wind, just sweep through our hearts and our minds, healing our our, our ill faith, healing our, our brokenness, healing our fears and our shame and our guilt, and just reminding us, Lord, how awesome you are and how deeply you love us. Help us, Father, when we start singing, Lord, if you're prompting us to, to come and for prayer, I pray that you'll don't let us hesitate. But Father, change us today. We want to please you in this world. Thank you, Lord, for giving the message to the women because we dropped the ball as guys did. But, Lord, we've been making it up ever since, and I pray that that never changes. We love you, Father. In Jesus we pray. Amen.